All right, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to this episode of Mic Drop, episode 35, guys. We're going to be discussing Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley enters the chat. It's that time of the year where the presidential campaigns have begun. Hope you had a nice rest and break from it all after the midterms because we are officially going to be exiting that season with a competitive primary between Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, former UN ambassador under Donald J. Trump, who will be announcing her candidacy for the presidency of the United States February 15th at a place called The Shed in South Carolina. Uh, we're going to talk about that and a lot more, answer your questions on kind of what you see happening. Anybody want to jump into the chat, do so now. Um, we're going to run for an hour today. Again, if my voice holds out and I need your guys' help by answering these questions. Uh, real quick on Colin, just to remind you all that this podcast is available anywhere you get your podcasts. It's best to get it directly here on the app. You can subscribe and join so that we can invite you as we're about to go live. Uh, those of you that are regulars, if you get the opportunity to share this uh, conversation on social media apps, help us build the audience, that would be much appreciated. Um, but for those new to um, the Mic Drop family, we try to do this 5.30 p.m. Pacific, 8.30 p.m. Eastern every week on Wednesday nights. Um, sometimes we do have a special uh, meeting, special uh, gathering of the family, but for uh, this time of the election cycle, we try to keep it down to once a week so that we're not overloading everybody because there's gonna be plenty, plenty, plenty of time to get all, um, all the fix you need on everything political as we head into um, the presidential, the 2024 presidential campaign. Um, so let's talk about that. Yeah, Peg, let's address that. We can jump into the Q2. I'll do, I'll do that after I give kind of a Haley introduction and we kind of have the discussion. Uh, we'll see where that goes from the group, but I do want to address this, this change in the census platform because it's going to be significant, very profound, and I really appreciate you bringing that to my attention. So without further ado, again, let me talk about the status of the Republican Party and the Republican lanes as they exist. My estimation, um, Donald Trump, of course, is still the odds-on favorites to win the nomination. I do believe that it's more tepid now than it was than at any point since the 2016 primary. Um, his iron grip over the Republican base largely still exists. It's not, of course, anywhere near what it was, but the fundamentals of the way the Republican Party is acting, behaving, and polling questions suggest but Donald Trump is still pretty much in command of this party. Now, this is not atypical. It's not atypical of a past president being the elder statesman. I don't know if that term applies here, but the elder statesman of the party still kind of being viewed as the titular head of the party because that's what the frame of reference is for voters. That's their history. That's their experience. That's the commitment that they made. That's where they're embedded. That's where they're involved. Always, 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 when you test in retrospect either a candidate who lost, a candidate who left office, or a candidate who ran and was unsuccessful, you're going to see that last nominee be at or near the top of the pack, leading the pack at this point in the cycle. What is atypical, of course, is Donald Trump and the intensities that he elicits, the loyalties that he has demanded and received from the party apparatus, and the question really becomes, is all of this dancing, all of this moving around, 
merely a function of the establishment doing what it does, the media kind of trying to make more of a story of it than it is, or are we actually seeing a fundamental shift of voters, Republican voters, wanting to move on beyond Donald Trump? My strong suspicion is at this moment in time, a lot of this is still pretty much insider baseball. A lot of people like us who watch and follow the news on the daily, uh, who, who monitor the regular social media cycle hour by hour, day by day, trying to get a sense of where this movement is or what kind of lanes may or may not exist. That's what the news cycle is speaking to, okay? Well, I'm not seeing any fundamentals changing in the course, the, 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 the blood coursing through the veins of the Republican Party. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not saying I'm wrong. I haven't seen any really detailed public polling data, but from what I have seen, I'm not saying a, a, seeing a change of course. Now, I know my friends at the Bulwark did a poll on this, show that 28% of Republicans would leave the Republican Party to vote for Donald Trump if there was an independent candidacy. For those of you that have been following me, you know that I've been saying this for a very long time, saying that there's at least a third probably in the 27 to 33% range, 28% squarely there, that would leave the Republican Party and vote for Donald Trump if Trump did not win the nomination and decided to run on his own. And I believe that if Trump loses the nomination, that is still the most likely scenario. Not saying that with a high degree of certainty. I think we're in a very um, unstable, chaotic environment with him and what he's dealing with legally, personally, financially, and then fourth, politically, literally in that order, okay? So a lot of things can happen. A lot of things do happen in politics. You guys have heard me say that every election cycle. What we're focused on right now is what are the fundamentals, recognizing that most of this stuff is going to change and change considerably as we start getting closer and closer to the heat of the election cycle. So the way the cycle is going to work is over the course of early to mid-spring, you're going to see a plethora of these candidates jump into this thing, okay? Larry Hogan, again, today, after Haley kind of uh, started making her, her gestures to jumping in, said, I'm increasingly likely to jump in. My prediction, Hogan gets into this thing. Does Pence get in? Yes, Pence is going to get into this thing. Is DeSantis going to get into this thing? I think he probably does. If I'm DeSantis, I'm going to wait until later into, into the narrative to inject myself because he's still probably the strongest challenger to Trump. But again, I think Trump remains the strongest person uh, in this um, in this field at this point in time. Now, you may have also noticed that some of the news coverage about Nikki Haley's getting into this, especially the Post Courier, which is one of the biggest papers in South Carolina, actually quoted Donald Trump. They called him for a comment and he called back. To me, that sounds a little bit fishy, but whatever. What's even more fishy is the quotes that he gave, which were basically, he wasn't discouraging her. He wasn't attacking her, okay? He actually said, follow your heart, and if your, your heart tells you to get into the race, then I welcome the competition. If That does not sound like Donald Trump, guys, right? We can all say that. That does not sound like Donald Trump. So what's going on? Well, the reality is, Donald Trump and his advisors are, are smart enough to know this. They're not very smart, but they're smart enough to know this. The more the field expands, the greater the likelihood that Trump wins the nomination. Okay, Trump needs a multi-candidate field. 
He's going to encourage it. In fact, I think a lot of what he's going to be saying early on is going to be similar to that. Let's have a contest. I welcome anybody and their ideas into this field. He's not going to go and attack. Not yet. He will. He's not going to get personal. He's not going to do the, the little Marco and the Lion Ted stuff. I still love Lion Ted. I love Lion Ted. Anybody wants to send me a t-shirt that says Lion Ted, I'll give you my address. I want that. He's going to do that. He will absolutely do that, okay? But not now. Not now. He needs a big field. The bigger, the better. Remember, 2016, he wins a field of 16 Republican candidates because, again, friendly reminder, almost all of the state Republican parties have winner-take-all primaries. You just got to be the highest vote getter. You got to win a plurality. It's not like the convoluted system that the Democrats have. Democrats have this weighted geography. Um, I, 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 no, no one can explain or understand the way the Democrats apportion their delegates, okay? There's probably five people in the world who understand it, three of which probably wrote the damn thing, okay? The other two are Hillary Clinton, by the way, and probably Bernie Sanders because they're the biggest losers of the whole damn thing. But there's really no incentive to get out of a Democratic primary unless you're pressured out. And that's, I don't want to get back into the Democrats, but that's what happened when after South Carolina, Pete Buttigieg and Klobuchar bail out, everyone kind of bails, Bernie takes it to California and then gets out, right? Republican Party is entirely different. Republicans have winner-take-all systems. You win the entire delegates of, of Utah if you win a simple simple plurality. You just have to get one more vote than, every, than, than the number two person. It doesn't matter if there's 15 candidates, two candidates, 2,000 candidates, you get them all. The top voter gets all of the delegates. So the bigger the field remains, the advantage goes to the person with the largest voter base, and that is undeniably, unquestionably Donald Trump. Let's say, worst case, you analyze the situation to say that that 28% of Republican voters who will follow him anywhere, including outside of the Republican Party, exists where it stands, nobody else has that intense a base. Nobody. I don't think anybody ever has, and that includes Ronald Reagan in the 84 re-elect, okay? Nobody has had such an intense base of support that fully a third of the voters in a party would leave in a cult of personality to follow that candidate wherever they go. This is extraordinary leverage over a political party. Extraordinary. It means that the Republican Party literally cannot win without Donald Trump's support. The problem is, I don't believe, and most Republicans in the swamp believe, that the Republicans can't win with Donald Trump either. And they're probably right. So that means the Republicans can't win with him, and they can't win without him. They're completely stuck, and they're all waiting You've seen some of these articles. I feel comfortable saying this because they were news articles. A lot of Republicans are basically saying, not publicly yet, but in quiet, they're, they're just waiting until the guy ages out and literally physically because he's either dead or incapable physically of running. They're, that is literally what their hope is now. That's the Republican strategy to get past Donald Trump. It's just time. It's just the calendar. It's just waiting for the guy to die. Okay, now his dad... Fred died at 93 and his mom died at 88. He's in his early 70s. 
his genes probably suggest he's got another 10 years. That heart made of lead or whatever the hell it's made out of is probably going to last even longer, right? He's going to be around for a while. But, and this is very important, we have to presume that he's not going to die. He's not going to get sick. He's going to continue marching forward on in the Republican Party. And I think that's a very square, very solid bet. Okay? So if that happens, again, in a multi-candidate field, when he's sitting at 27, 28% of just pure red hot intensity, all he needs is another 8 or 9% in a multi-candidate field to start racking up all of these winner-take-all votes. Remember, Donald Trump only got 37% of the national GOP primary vote in 2016. He did not get a majority. Okay, 63% of Republicans in primaries voted for somebody else. And those somebody else's are still being reflected, I believe, in the polling. Okay, that's not uncommon. But once the field starts to consolidate, there's a very good chance, a very likely chance that the vast majority of that remaining balance outside of that 28% of intense Trump base starts to fall into line. Now, again, remember, you've all known the math. You've heard me say this for years now. He needs all of it. He needs 100% of it. And the chances of that are extremely extraordinarily de minimis because he's going to lose more independence than he did in 2020. He's going to lose more independence than he lost in 2016. Republicans moved away from him, as you know, in Maricopa County, Arizona in 2020. They moved further away with Kerry Lake. Herschel Walker loses Georgia by a bigger margin than he does in 2020. Wisconsin gets problematic. Pennsylvania is looking further and further out of touch for a presidential campaign. Again, we're going to look back, as I've said, in Pennsylvania, 88 and 2016 were the only two times in the last 35 years that Republicans have won Pennsylvania. It's not as competitive as we think in a national political environment. The roadmap is really, really, really tough. And the roadmap, the demographic roadmap that Trump used in 2016 was to increase the number of white, non-college educated, low propensity workers. Right. That was the overperformance in the polls that we saw in Pennsylvania and in Ohio and in North Carolina and in uh, Wisconsin and all these areas of Midwest areas, Rust Belt states that Hillary forgot about or dismissed or didn't attend. And that's where he overperforms. That's where the polling was off. He performs again with them in the 2020 race. OK, they show up for Donald Trump. That white hot intensity is pure Trump intensity. It is not Republican intensity. 2018 proved that. 2022 proved that. Okay. The Georgia runoffs both times proved that. That is a Trump voter, not a Republican voter, not a Republican Trump voter. It is a Donald J. Trump voter. Okay. This is really important in trying to understand the consideration of what the calculation is going to look like for an anti-Trump lane. And I think anti-Trump, that terminology actually, is, 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 is exaggerated. There are anti-Trump Republicans. There, there's guys like me and, and probably five others of us. Like there's, there's no measurable, discernible lane within the Republican Party that is actually of any consequence. That's what Liz Cheney found out. That's what Adam Kinzinger found out. That's what Larry Hogan's going to find out about. doesn't mean that there isn't a righteous fight to be had, and it doesn't mean that we don't essentially have veto power 
over the Republican nominee because as the Republican Party base shrinks demographically and as it isolates in the 270 map in red monolithic states, they cannot lose any voters, like none, none. Ask Carrie Lake, ask Herschel Walker, ask Dr. Oz, ask Laxalt, ask any one of these competitive states, any one of these battleground states show that the Republican Party not, doesn't just have to get nearly 100% of its base vote. It also has to have independents break considerably in its direction. Okay. Is that possible? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Youngkin did it in Virginia. It's possible. Okay. It's increasingly less likely. And it's even less likely in a national contest for president. Okay. Now, you've also heard me say that the national environment in a general election is extraordinarily stratified. This idea that the voters are bouncing back and forth or that the poll is going to move significantly between um, a Republican and Democratic nominees is just bullshit. It's nonsense. It's an elementary understanding that most people have that, oh, people want to drink beer with that candidate. So that's why they like them or this is a whatever whatever characteristics they impose on people. Those those are that's it's just nonsense. OK. In 2016, look how close every contest has been nationally since 2000, right? George Bush, Al Gore, Florida, handful of votes, right? You can make good arguments both ways on, on that. We're not going to relitigate the 2000 ways. But the point is that's how close a contest was. Then you look at 2004, not terribly close. It's the one time a Republican wins the popular vote and the Electoral College, but we're also at war, right? There's kind of an exception to be made. John Kerry's running against George W. Bush. He's, a, he's an incumbent president at war. No one's going to, you know, you're not going to switch horses midstream like that. 2008, Obama just kind of wipes the field with John McCain. Capitalism, the economic system is completely melting down. 2012, again, incumbent. Um, Obama wins considerably in both the popular vote and in the Electoral College. We all know the story of 2016. Bottom line is this. The differences, the differences in the actual percentages between the Republican and Democrat since the year 2000. We've had what, five contests. We're heading into our sixth presidential contest since 2000 have been within a couple of points, one or two points. Okay. At the popular vote, they're really not that different at all. Like, remember, 2000 was 0%. And, and what did uh, Hillary wins by two or three points and Biden wins by two or three points, two in the popular vote. That's over 25 years, folks. That, that's the difference that we're talking about. Those are the margins that I'm talking about, okay? And remember, when you're doing polling like that and you're talking about a 3% victory for the Democrat, it's weighted towards larger, more populous states like California and New York, because if you have California and New York, they dominate the popular vote. So you have to weigh that in, all of which goes to say, again, that's how close these contests are. I guarantee you this. I shouldn't guarantee anything in this environment, but I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb. The election of 2024 is going to be decided by less than 100,000 votes across three states, maybe four. Okay, maybe four, because I'm looking at Nevada, and we're going to take a look at North Carolina because I do believe North Carolina should be in a more competitive position than it has been. Tightened up considerably in the 2022 midterms. No one's talking about that as much as they should be. 
So maybe five, maybe five states. Okay, it's a completely different map to 270. Florida and Ohio are not competitive states anymore. You've got Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, Wisconsin, and I'm going to say North Carolina. Okay, across those five states, 100,000 voters combined are going to determine the outcome of the 2024 contest. That's just how this works. So this idea that somehow it's all these, all these, there's going to be all this movement, or this candidate speaks to this, or this candidate speaks to that. There's a lot more science involved in this, folks, than there is art at this point in the cycle, and certainly as we head into the stretch, okay? So I want you to be mindful. That's all the setup. Again, long Mike Madrid windup before we get into the Nikki Haley lane. Now, Haley's argument is particularly challenging. And by the way, I owe a couple of my friends an apology because I have said the stupidest thing Nikki Haley could do, the dumbest thing she could do, would be to jump into this primary. Okay, and I, I, I said, there's just no way she's going to do it. She's just not that stupid. Tricks on me. She is that stupid. Okay. A lot of these people, I guess, they're, and again, I don't think she's necessarily taking a real shot. I don't think she's shooting a real shot here. I think she's still trying to be relevant and stay, stay somewhere towards the top of, of, of staying involved at the appointment level, cabinet level, VP level, something level for whoever's ultimately going to be the nominee, okay? And, and I'm going to tell you why. The first is um, she's not white and she's not a man and she's not Christian. Uh, Harmeet Dillon, for those of you that are real junkies and watch the RNC battle between Ronna McDaniel and Harmeet Dillon, Harmeet, uh, somebody I've known Harmeet for a long time. She hates me like most Republicans hate my guts. She's a national committee woman from California. She is a um, Punjabi woman of color from San Francisco, who is probably the single largest apologist for the Republican Party west of the Mississippi. What she didn't, I think, take into account was if you're going to be a front for white Christian nationalists, don't think for a moment <laughs> that somehow they genuinely believe that you're good for the cause, that you're good for the movement, okay? If you're willing to sacrifice and leverage your being a woman, your being a person of color, your being a non-Christian and showing the world that that's not what all Republicans are, you're making a huge tactical error, okay? A huge strategic error. And that's what Harmeet found out, okay? There's this, all this scuttlebutt, especially from Southern states saying, you know, you know, if she's not white and Christian, what does that mean to America? How could the Republican Party do that? The truth of the matter is, that is a very real sentiment in the Republican Party. It is, I would argue, it is the dominant sentiment in the Republican Party. It is absolutely the dominant sentiment amongst the grassroots. And it's clearly, clearly, demonstrably, quantifiably the sentiment amongst the leadership of the Republican National Committee. Okay? So when it's a private vote in a private room, they're not going to vote for somebody that isn't a member of their tribe. They're going to want to put you on Fox News. They're going to want to elevate you like a diamond in silk. They're going to want to put you out there to be the beard, to be the face, to say, oh, yeah, look, we're a diverse party. <clears throat> but are they going to actually vote for you to elevate you and put you in a position of power and authority? Come on. Come on. You ain't that dumb. But, but here's Nikki Haley jumping in, thinking that she's going to be the exception to that rule. I just don't see that happening in the Republican primary. 
maybe arguably you could have seen it in 2016 prior to 2016 although i don't think so especially now when we saw how intense the response was this backlash was to a barack obama presidency and i think that there was a lot of that right this he's a muslim he's not really american he's black can't have that because that's not really america like that is a rising sentiment in the american rights today okay and and the, the, the appeal for those types of candidates are only skin deep, okay? It's very thin. It's very cosmetic. Your value to the GOP is to be put up there to say all of the things that they are saying and apologize for it and give the veneer that, oh, it's not really bad. The truth is, yeah, it's really bad, okay? And I, I learned that. I learned that the hard way. Okay, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that a Nikki Haley or other minority Republicans don't actually believe in conservative values. I do that. They don't actually believe in, in, in a conservative, small government philosophy of the world. I believe that many and or most do. But that doesn't mean that everybody else does. They may say it, but do they genuinely believe it? The 2016 election, the Donald Trump era, demonstrably proves they do not. That is not the dominant ideology or belief system of the Republican Party. As Stuart Stevens said in his book, it was all a lie, right? It was Tim Miller's book in the Why Did We Do It? They both walk through all of this, suggesting with a hell of a lot of good evidence that a lot of this, 90% of Republican voters don't believe this bullshit. Okay? Or if they once did, it was subsumed by identity politics, white identity politics. Okay, So that's what, that's what Nikki Haley faces. I don't know that the alternative to the Trump administration is kind of being a Trump light, which is kind of what Pence is trying to do, right? If there is a, a, a Trump, now non-Trump lane, like I was a Trumper and I supported Trump. Now I'm anti-Trump, but I'm still Trump so you can trust me. Like that's the argument that Pence is trying to make. That's the argument that Haley's trying to make. All of these people who, and again, Haley, remember, Haley was with Rubio in the primary. She said some pretty sharp things against Trump. Trump forgives her or at least allows her back in to keep her close. I think the party establishment's like, this is the future of the party. We need at least a handful of people that are not white male voices, gives her the job at UN, and she becomes a, a, a Trump toady. Like, who are you Who are you ingratiating by doing that? The Trumpers are never going to believe or trust you because you were never pure enough to begin with. There's a ton of audio, ton of video showing you lambasting him standing next to little Marco. You're not, you're not going to get into that lane, especially when Trump turns the cannon on you, and he will. He will when the field gets bigger. He's not going to now. His weakness right now is actually his biggest strength. Let me say that again. Very important politically. The weaker Trump looks right now is his best position of strength because he's going to draw all the vultures in. He's going to draw Nikki Haley in. He's going to draw Hogan in. He's going to draw Pence in. He's going to draw DeSantis in. Once it gets to four or five, you're going to start seeing others start to jump in because they're going to say Trump's not strong enough. And I think you're going to see this, this initial flurry after the dam breaks 
of some of the C, D level candidates jumping in. And I put Nikki Haley at the D level candidacy, by the way. Hogan, who I like more than any other one, anti-Trumper from the beginning. There's no lane for that, for, for, for Hogan. I Look, I would work for, for Hogan. I believe in Larry Hogan. But I'm also a political professional whose job is to make the right decisions on these things. There's just, it's like trying to get Liz Cheney elected president in Republican primary. It's just, it's just, it's just nonsense. She's smart enough to know that. There's no lane there. Okay. So the idea that somehow you could be against Trump, then for Trump, and now against Trump again, and have some sort of a constituency is kind of a fool's errand, right? It's the Chris Christie model. Like, what day is it? Are you running? Are you not running? By the way, Chris Christie probably runs because why the hell wouldn't he? What the hell else is he doing? What the hell else is the guy going to do? You might as well roll the dice. Yeah, it's a two in a hundred chance, but at least there's a chance, right? Like, what else is he going to do? So this field starts to get bigger, and all of these small, never-Trumper, you know, C and D characters are, are competing for a very thin lane. And I'm putting Pence in that lane, too. Remember, Trump's people were going to hang him. <laughs> like they're not gonna, they're not going to somehow wake up and be like, "Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, um, okay, I, he's the guy I'm with him." Like no, like he's he's literally like the enemy. Like he's 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 viewed in the same vein as Nancy Pelosi. There's no Pence Lane. Okay, so you got Pence, you got Haley, you got Chris Christie. Hogan is a slightly different lane, but it's needed in this coalition. You've got all of these cast of characters that were against Trump, then for Trump, now against Trump. That's a very small constituency. Everyone is waiting on DeSantis, Pompeo. Let's get Pompeo in there. Throw Pompeo into that mix of never pro, never Trump again, okay? There's four or five people into a lane that maybe is maybe 12, 15% of the GOP base, okay? And the more people that jump in, former Trump administration officials, trying to act like their government service was somehow some sort of experience are completely missing what is happening in the Republican primaries. Okay. Because even though these wackadoodles are losing, think about the common characteristic that they all have, starting with Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz, Carrie Lake. Uh, who's the um, JD Vance, right? What, what, do all, what do all of these people have in common? Celebrity. But more important than celebrity, they have no government experience. That's the virtue. That's the feature. It's not despite the fact that they have no experience. It's because they have no experience. That is a sign of, an, of a group, of a movement that is countercultural. If you have government experience, you are suspects. We used to look for experience as a validator, as, oh, this person's up for the job. They did a good job as governor. Oh, they did a good job as senator. I like the legislation that they worked on. I like the, the laws that they implemented as governor. I like the job that they did. Let's give them a promotion. That's the way it's been since time memorial, right? Certainly since the, Donald Trump was the first president since George Washington who never held public office. I mean, that's wild. That's just crazy, right? But it's a sign of counter, of countercultural movement. And that is the value proposition in today's Republican Party. It's not a small niche thing. 
It's not a curiosity. It's not a coincidence. It's a large overarching trend where Republican voters are looking for this quality. In fact, as I've said before, I think it's so strong and it's so determinative in the Republican mindset. It may actually undo Trump because he was president. It's why I think, and I've said this before, if Tucker Carlson wants the nomination, I don't know that he does, but if he if he does, he'll get it. Tucker Carlson will win the Republican nomination. He will beat Trump. He will beat DeSantis. He'll beat the other 10 or 15 candidates that are running. Okay? Because these are culture warriors. They're not involved in government. Government has become so evil and so demonic in the minds of so many Republican voters that your participation in it makes you complicit in it. Okay? That's really what's important to understand is the Republican Party is a countercultural movement. It's anti-expertise. It's anti-establishment. It's populist. It's anti-anything powerful. It's anti-anything influential. It literally starts to make its own reality when reality doesn't match what it wants the world to be. That's, that's what is going on, okay? And it's getting bigger. It's not getting smaller, at least in the Republican Party and with a certain demographic. I do believe it's being limited demographically and being contained within the GOP, which is what I think the 2022 midterms were showing us, okay? So I don't think Haley has much of a chance, okay? First of all, I've never thought she had much of a chance, but I certainly don't now because she's not a pure Trumper, like a Kerry Lake type, right? And Kerry Lake would never, Kerry Lake is just a, like, a, like a Marjorie Taylor Greene. So if Nikki Haley is auditioning to be vice president, no chance against a Marjorie Taylor Greene. No chance. So I'm not too sure exactly what it is that Nikki Haley is, is running for, but um, I, all I can do is ascribe it to kind of this Chris Christie phenomenon where they don't have much of a choice. They're, they're, they're running because they've got nothing else to do, like the end of their careers, and you might as well gamble uh, at, at the outcome of something and hope that something breaks your way, because sometimes it does in politics than to just sit there and do nothing. So um, let me see. So let me tell, let me answer any questions. Do we want to talk about, um, do we want to talk about Haley anymore? Have you guys had enough of this discussion? Do you want me to talk about anything else in the GOP primary? Or do you guys want to shift to some of the other questions that are coming up in the, in the chat? By the way, it helps me when you guys ask questions on stage as opposed to just drop them in the chat. It's okay if you do, because I want that interaction. I want to get your questions answered. But it does give me a break to take a little bit of a breather to rest my voice, even if for just a second. So I know there's questions. We're starting to get stuff popped in. Gene, you were up on stage, but then you dropped off. Don't be afraid. Come on up. Um, and if we don't get any questions related to the Republicans, then I will talk a little bit more about the census. But... Uh, and you can you can jump back if you want to take the conversation back to the, the GOP primary. That's okay too. But I'd rather kind of hit as many of these questions while we're on topic as we possibly can. Okay, hearing none. Let's talk about the census. Peg brought this up. Regular listener, big follower, regular attendee to mic drop. She's obviously very excited. If you can see the see the chat there, um, the Biden administration is considering. Uh, what seems like a very um, mercurial 
administrative change, but actually will have, I think, very profound impacts on the way we view our own American identity. Okay. And that is this. Um, every year uh, since really the 1980 census, there has been a very big debate about what, well, let me, let me take it back. The term Hispanic was created in the 1970s, okay, for the um, uh, 1970 census. The Nixon administration created the term Hispanic to identify people of Latin or Latin origin, essentially people from a Spanish-speaking country. And one of the challenges with Hispanic is that includes Spaniards, which of course, because that's where Spanish comes from, Spain, and and the, the correlation between that and the experience of people from South and Central America is really negligible. And where it does exist, it's, it hasn't been a good historical relationship, if you know what I mean, okay? Conquest still doesn't sit well with, with, most, with most countries. And so there's not a common culture to speak of. Now, Hispan being Hispanic um, is different than being Latino, right? The term Latino, and I often use them interchangeably, but, but they're not. Latino means that you're from a Latin American country, a non, take Spain out of the Hispanic and you essentially have Latin American or Latino uh, culture, Latino people, okay? Some, some, some minor variations, but that's the difference between Hispanic and Latino is the Spain component, okay? But both are still under the rubric of the U.S. Census Bureau that says uh, you're of Hispanic origin. Now, his Hispanic is an ethnicity. It's not a race. This is really important. This is the crux of it all. So Hispanics, whenever I get the census form, I say my ethnicity is Hispanic, but my race is white because we are racially, Hispanics are considered white. Now, as our country has grown significantly more diverse, especially from cultures in Latin America and increasingly from countries throughout the Middle East, because people throughout the Middle East often identify or are characterized on the census as white as well, there's a, an argument, and I think it's a very good one, that these are these ethnicities aren't truly reflective or have as much in common as whites than they do their own distinct identity and and race essentially being a social construct can be somewhat fluid now for 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 researchers this is very difficult because if you're not comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges it's hard to look at the 1980 census and compare it to the 2000 census and compare that to the 2020 census if you're using different definitions, okay? This got particularly problematic during the Trump administration in 2020. Some of you may remember this when they were doing a census count and a lot of Hispanics were afraid to be counted anyway because we also, during the census, by the way, we count the undocumented. We count people here who are not here legally because we're looking to see how many people are living here. Like that's the point. We're looking for data. We're looking for information 
We're looking for apportionment for representation, and we're looking for apportionment for federal funding. And that criteria is not based off of your legal status, your permanent resident status, your alien status, or your naturalization status. None of that matters. All we care is who lives here. You don't have to have an address. You can be homeless. You don't have to have any other criteria except live here under whatever circumstances you live. Where do you live? How many people live in that household or, or on the street? We count homeless people. How many people live in this area, this part of the state? And what is their status? By status, I mean living conditions, gender, um, race, ethnicity, income levels, all those things we look for because we're trying to get a sense of our American identity. Who are we? Who are we as a people? That's what the census is, okay, in, in large part. Not entirely, but in large part. The other part is the more functionary stuff, like apportionment, reapportionment, how many members of Congress go where and all that all that stuff. But for, for, for people who are looking at and studying race and ethnicity and American identity, this proposed change under the Biden administration is going to create distinct racial uh, boxes for Hispanics and for certain groups, ethnicities under Middle Eastern, of Middle Eastern origin, and presumably more, and create create a pathway to continue that expansion. And if that happens, you, we are going to find that America is probably already a minority majority country. Now there are five minority majority states, Hawaii, New Mexico, California, Texas just passed that number. Anybody help me know, I think that's four. Somebody want to give me the fifth one? Maybe it's Nevada. I think there's five. So anyway, but bottom line is I think there's five. There's four or five minority majority states. They tend to be very populous states. And right now, America is on a trajectory. The United States of America is on a trajectory to become minority majority by 2040. Okay? Which is probably within my lifetime. I hope to see it, right? This is, this is what I've been studying since I was in my undergraduate program. I've been watching this trajectory of demographic change of the country as we transition from being an overwhelmingly white Christian nation. Very important. Overwhelmingly identify as a white Christian nation to becoming a, a country where a majority are not white as we know them and decreasingly Christian, a less of Christian origin. Most, by the way, most people that are leaving Christian sects are not becoming Muslim or Jewish or non They're just becoming a religious. They're leaving religion and disaffiliating entirely from religion. Okay. But what the Biden administration is, is, is proposing is creating these different racial categories. Uh, and, and frankly, it's one I, I actually support. Um, even though it's going to, it's going to mess up a lot of our data going forward and going backwards, I think for on a go forward basis, as we become a non-white Christian nation and start to take on and challenge the challenges of a lot of those questions, which is, again, the, the, it's the bulk of the last part of the book that I'm working on, is what is America if it's not a white Christian nation? Now, that may sound like a simple question. It's actually extraordinarily profound. It's so profound that it's what's motivating a hell of a lot of people on the right, the American right in the Republican Party, to behave the way that they are. It's leading people to literally destroy American institutions because they believe that this is no longer America. That if it's not a white Christian nation, 
then it's not America, which is neither Christian, by the way, nor American. <laughs> but that's, that's what Christian nationalism is. And we'll have a discussion on this because, again, Christian nationalism, I think, is probably the single largest threat to American democracy and the biggest force for authoritarianism in the world, by the way, not just the United States, not just in Brazil, not just in France, where, you know, the National Front, not just where Forza Nuova in Italy, not just where the Golden Dawn in Greece and all these right wing extremist movements are happening all over the world. It's largely tied in with Christian nationalism in a funded, orchestrated, sophisticated way. Set that aside. I'm not going to go down that road too much. But the census could tell us if these changes happen, they could determine that we are already or very close to being a non-white Christian majority nation. Now, that will still be the largest plurality, right? Because demographically, we were so overwhelmingly white and Christian up until the 1980s that we started to see this decline happen. Uh, the, 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 the diversification of American identity. But the question that, that I'm asking and proposing and trying to answer in, in this book in large part is can our institutions manage the chaos of going through this transformation? Will whites, white Christians seek to destroy it? Will they seek to impose an authoritarian form of government to preserve a white Christian tribal nation? Or are they willing to relinquish their majority status and their privilege that, that comes along with it to protect and preserve and hand off the American experiment to a non-white Christian people? It, it, it's, it's, it's really a, a profound question, at least to nerds like me. It sounds very small. It sounds like it's not that big of a thing. Oh, yeah, just, you know, comfortable with white non-white Christians. But the whole formation of our government is really the apex of, of, of white Protestant thought. The idea that once, once you believe that you don't need the Catholic Church and you don't need saints and you don't need intercessors and you don't need a pope, to tell you how to have a relationship with God, why the hell should I uh, trust a monarch to, to tell me how to live like an, on the mortal plane, right? I mean, America is kind of the natural evolution of Protestantism from the spiritual realm to, to, the, to the secular world, right? And so this creation, this beautiful creation that the founding fathers gave us is this elegant, elaborate system of checks and balances that allowed for the greatest amount of individual freedom and individual influence in, in having a say in the governance of their society. It's very Protestant in its worldview. It's beautiful, by the way. I think, I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of America, huge fan of what the founders did. I think it's just incredibly, uh, inc incredibly um, uh, elaborate, elegant, and just a profound solution for this new age. But over 20 generations or whatever we've had of Americans, this decline, this precipitous decline of people of white Christian origin, and it's not just happening in the United States, it's happening all over Western Europe, it's creating a white lash is what I think it's often referred to, which is a backlash of white Christians saying there's too much immigration. We need to preserve these countries that are of historically white Christian heritage, because if we don't, we may lose all of these things that we've created. Now, 
I take issue with that, but it's a legitimate point as to whether or not people that are, do not come from a Protestant background, whether they can, can promulgate, protect, and expand the idea of self-governance, of self-representation of a republic. I think it's a fair question. I don't think that Latin American cultures, for example, could have created the Constitution of the United States. I don't think Catholics could have done it. And I say that as a Catholic. It's just not a, it's not a Catholic document, right? It's a very Protestant document. And there's something very profound and important to it that I do think needs to be protected and preserved. And so the question is, if you have a document, a founding and a history that was created by one set of people with the cultures, values, the norms, the mores of one select group of people. And when I say one, there's obviously a very diverse set of white European nationalities that came at that during those times, but there was still largely a Protestant ethic. Remember, we didn't have we didn't have a Catholic president until Kennedy. Biden's only the second one out of the 46 that we've had. Like it's pretty consistent who the power structure is in this country. Okay. And I, that, 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 that's, I think that's very important, by the way. It's not just a religious uh, statement. It's, it's a world perspective. It's a worldview argument. We've only had one non-white president. We've never had a female president. Like remar the United States has been remarkably monolithic in its power structure. I'm not telling anybody here anything new, but to understand how significant this change is, you have to realize our entire history the entire history of the United States has been really monolithic. I mean, there, and I don't mean to dismiss the, the incredible diversity of, of, of Western European thought, whether they're German Lutherans or, or, or you know, um, whatever you want. And by the way, you know, with, with, with the great awakening that happened in the late 1800s, American Christianity took on kind of a radically new form. There were a lot of American-inspired Christian sects, Mormonism, right, that, that, that start in this period of time where there's a certain divinity associated with the United States of America, which is a fascinating concept, and it's also the perfect Petri dish. It's the perfect recipe for ascendant Christian nationalism. And that's, that is, the, again, these, I'm probably being a little bit too, too nerdy and I'm not getting a whole lot of, a whole lot of, I think, questions about this. So um, I hope I'm not losing people, but, but these are things that I think about a lot because I, I, I believe that these are going to be some of the larger challenges to democracy than what we are simply characterizing right now as the rise of Christian nationalism and the rise of kind of white supremacy and what the FBI considers the single largest domestic threat, which is our these domestic terrorist organizations that are fighting to preserve Western chauvinism like the Proud Boys or uh, white supremacy like a whole lot of groups on the right or anti-Catholic sentiment because it, it's viewed as an attack on the idea of America, the notion, the culture of America and self-governance and this constitution that we built up. And so um, th this threat is going to be a generational threat. And I say that as somebody who 
you know, is presumably part of the, the threat, right? Which is a, a, a non-white Catholic who's emergent as the majority. But I think one of the great ironies is that is the, the ascendant Latino electorate that is probably best positioned to protect the American experiment because of the culture and values that it brings, especially a more moderate view on, our, on the question of race, right? Imagine for a moment, imagine America if, if uh, black Americans were increasing in population at the rate that Hispanics are increasing. Like white America would be losing its freaking mind, right? Because that's our original racial construct is black and white. In fact, I should probably incorporate some of those <laughs> that into the book. I mean, that's a great model to look at is one of the reasons why we've on, never had an honest racial reckoning after the Civil War, which of course was untenable, it's freaking slavery for God's sakes. But the reason why we go from, from slavery, the Civil War, to Reconstruction, which, which never really rectified anything, right? A lot of the Southerners were simply brought back in and said, you can be as racist and oppressive and supremacist as you can be. Just You just can't own people anymore, but, but you can make them sharecroppers and put them in so much debt that they're essentially indentured servants, right? That's Reconstruction. And then we go to Jim Crow, and then we go to civil rights, and then we deal with stuff like we're seeing with policing, right, which a lot of our policing techniques I won't get into that, but my, my point is one of the reasons we haven't ha been forced to have an honest racial reckoning in the United States is because the black population has always been about 10 to 11 percent, at least since the early part of last century. It's never been a threat of numerically challenging a white hierarchy. OK, so imagine, if you will. Currently, about 22% of the population is of either Hispanic or Black uh, heritage. Imagine if 22% were all Black in a white country, and those numbers were expanding so fast that we would be a non-white majority by 2040. Think of how, how incredibly combustible American society would be if that were the case. And that's also why I believe that the rising Latinization of America, the changing demography, is forcing a racial discussion that we've never had before in many ways in a more moderate way than we otherwise would. But it's a conversation that can't be had without these social outbursts because that identity of who we are and who our tribe is, is really literally embedded in our DNA over many, 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 many thousands of years, it's been the source of conflicts and war and killing for eons, for millennia. And so the fact that we're having it, I think is healthy, but it's not gonna be easy. And it's happening, I think in a unique way in American history that we have never really had it in large part because um, this great replacement theory you hear Tucker Carlson talking about it's not about black people replacing white people. It's about Hispanic people replacing white people. We just don't have the ability to talk about it in any other way as Americans because 
our entire racial dialogue, our entire diversity dialogue is all about black and white. You absolutely see it in Congress. You absolutely see it in our political system. You absolutely see it in corporate America. You absolutely see it in entertainment. You absolutely see it basically in every aspect of society because the only way that white people know how to have a conversation about race is about black people or white people. It's in that contrast. It's just lack of understanding of those gradations. And I'm not suggesting that blacks or Latinos are any better. They are all each different, but that's why we're having those complications and those differences. Melissa, if you unmute, you can ask that question. Hi, Mike. Hi. Uh, it's Melissa. You're, um, can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. Okay. Um, the, the New Yorican I called a couple of weeks ago, but um, I wanted to ask about this notion of race and, and Latinidad. Um, because you've said a few times um, that you're considering Latinos white, although we're not all white. There's, you know, the there's a, a big section of Black Latinos, you know, Latinos that come from, you know, the the enslaved people. And 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 for me, even though I'm white presenting, you know, I look very light skinned. Um, I, you know, I grew up in New York City, like it was pretty clear that I was not white. I understand the whole racial category if you're, you know, but I've, and, and a lot of people around me, like we've completely rejected the notion of race. Like I'm not white. Like it was made clear to me growing up in New York, I'm not white and I'm not, you know, and, and I wasn't black, although. Yeah, know. well, I'm, the, look, this is, this is the crux of it. And again, let me want to clarify. Afro-Latinos are not that big of a percentage of the Latino community. It's in the single digits. It's not that big. I'm not saying it's not important. It absolutely is. But it's kind of like Cubans, our Cuban brothers and sisters. It's less than, it's like 6%. It has, it has a conflated role in terms of percentages in the culture and the media narrative. Now, Afro-Latinos, I don't think, enjoy that same, you know, inflated sense that Cubans do. And Maxwell Frost, who was just elected to Congress, by the way, is an Afro-Latino Cuban. It's like 25, 26 years old, youngest member of Congress, I think first or second Gen Z member, uh, who's going to, I think, really take the, 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 the very important points that you're saying and advance those issues in a very legitimate, rightful way. The discussion of who is Latino and what that means is going to change remarkably over the coming decades to the point where it's going to be kind of diffuse like whiteness. We're going to start saying interesting things in the next 20 years like whites are not all monolithic, <laughs> right? There's tremendous diversity in white America and white people are going to start identifying with their own. This is my prediction. White people will start identifying more and more with their ancestral ethnicity and identities as they become a smaller share of the electorate. They're going to start becoming more and more cohesive. That's part of this pushback that you're seeing happen in the United States of America right now is white when you're kind of everything and everywhere and everybody, and there's just a small 10% sliver of non-whites. It's not a threat. You can be more expansive in your identity. When you start to shrink, you start to recognize your distinctness. You start to identify your identity differently. You start to recognize your uniqueness. And in that uniqueness, you start to look for gradations. That's what's happening as Latinos are ascendant right now. And it's what's happening with whites as they're consolidating. 
So America's facing two very significant challenges. The first is the consolidation and shrinking of the white population, which is creating its own set of racial challenges personified almost entirely in the Republican Party. And then you have this emergent Latin, Latino community where there's a struggle to identify what Latinidad is. How black are we? How white are we? How distinct are we? And can we be a truly distinct culture if some of us are black? Or if a third of us identify as white? If a third of you identify as white and 10, 15% of you identify as black, but you're all saying you're Latino, how cohesive can that new quote unquote racial identity be? We don't know. We don't know because that question has never been answered or asked really anywhere on most of the planet with the exception of a few Caribbean nations, which are not representative of, this, of a country the size and scope of the United States. I'm not saying it's not important. It has existed. It has happened, but not on this scale. No, nowhere in the history of mankind has, has, a, has a government existed like this that is going to be as diverse and as mixed as we are going to be. Now, you mentioned Latinidad and our Hispanicity, right? They're, they're, they're different. Take the Spain out of Hispanic and you get Latinos, essentially, right? But Latinidad identity is defined by being mixed race. It's literally the definition. It's when you bring Europeans and indigenous people together, it creates something new. And that something new has, and I think you phrased it perfectly, it has no home perfectly in either place. It's not comfortable being white because we're not white. I don't, I, I, I have to identify as white because I'm more white than black, essentially. And when the federal government says, are you black, white, or Asian? I'm like, I'm not either of those things, but I've got to check one box. That's the way the in, in, right now. Yeah, and no, and I and I I check in the in those cases I I check other and I I've I've had the same yeah. thought like what do I check because I yeah. used to, but I think in the last you know especially since you know in the last like since George Floyd at least, you know we've been reckoning as a as a society a Latino society about race. You did the episode recently about what happened in California. What was that? Los Angeles with the recordings. And actually, I, so I work at a university. I work in a Latino studies department at a university. So this is always top of mind for me. Yeah. But one of our professors actually brought that up. That situation up. Good. Um, with with to her into her introduction to Latino studies class Good. about race and yeah. and our community. And, and so, and you know, I'm going to actually talk about this topic in the book. It's it's very it's regional to Los Angeles. It didn't make as much national news as it should have, but it's really the first challenge of exactly that because and again, you, you the way you're articulating this is just it's poetic. There's so much about Latinidad, about Latino identity that allows us to lean into where we need to go. As you said, you're, you're white facing, I think is the term that you used. Like a lot of people don't know that I'm Latino, right? And they, the only reason they do is because I talk about it so damn much. But if not, they'd be like, oh, you're Mediterranean, you're Italian, you're Greek, you're, you know, you're whatever, whatever you are, you know, you can, Mike, you can kind of mix and, and match all of these things. So ethnicity is something that we hold on to and lean into very often. And there have been times in my life, especially as a Republican, where I have had to be more white to survive, right? Because that's what they're looking for. That's why when I talk about a Nikki Haley, there's only so far she's going to be able to go with that. Because in the back of a lot of these people's minds is like, you're not of our tribe. 
you may say you are and you give us a good front, but you're not one of us. And that I've experienced a lot. At the same time, because of my beliefs, I've been rejected and cast out of Hispanic communities. People saying, how can you possibly be a Republican? How can you possibly be somebody who believes in smaller government? Because that's not what Latinos are, as if Latinos are somehow in their DNA or given some political party they have to. And so I, I'm not I'm not comfortable at either, right? I get I get certain aspects of both, and I decry aspects of both. And as you all know, follow me and listen to me, I'm more than comfortable saying the Democrats are wrong about this. The Republicans are wrong about this. The Democrats are right about this, and the Republicans are right about this. Because my my ethnic identity is my American identity. It's not my Republican identity makes me an American or my Democratic identity makes me an American. Like political parties, are the, uh, they're, I don't think they're great institutions anyway. They've really come to a bad place, but they're really not relevant in this emergent, emergent diversifying America that is not a white Christian nation. Now, having said that, what Biden's administration is proposing is creating a separate Hispanic or Latino racial category, which I think is wise to the same reason you do. I don't identify as white. I'm not white. But when I have a choice between white, black, and Asian, I, I kind of have, you, you said other is another category, right? That other exploded in number in the 2020 census. That was the real finding is researchers and federal government employees are looking at this going, there are so many others now that these three boxes that we have don't work. They don't match up to what's happening. We need more data because somebody checking other could be um, Iranian, Persian, or they could be from Nicaragua, right? They're both, they're both claiming other, but, but they're, they're so distinct. It's not a really good category for understanding who we are. So we're trying to make more and more categories not to separate us, not to balkanize us further, to give us an understanding of who is here and who is adding to this mix of understanding our own American identity. Does that make sense? It does. And, and I'm going to, um, you know, take off, get off the chat because my, my baby's crying again. Uh -huh. But um, I, I just the reason I follow you is you're giving me a lot more context to understand that it's not just about ethnic differences, but regional differences so thank you I'll, I'll keep listening i love your questions thank you and please join us because what your perspective is really important to help us understand especially with what you do professionally so thank you and go take care of your little one um okay i think we're kind of we're wrapping up here this we started with nikki haley it devolved it, it evolved into a discussion on race in the census peg thank you for bringing that up uh if there's any last questions go ahead and jump into the chat uh, otherwise, I think we're going to probably wrap it up because, as you know, I could go on and on and on about this stuff. And in fact, I will be as we get closer over the uh, heading into spring of 2024. But I did want to mention that there is obviously a correlation between Nikki Haley's chances, which I think are not good, and race and ethnicity in America as the Republican Party, again, further consolidates as a party of white grievance focused largely on ascendant white Christian nationalism, what role is there for a non-white woman um, who may or may not have a Christian background? I'm not too sure of Nikki Haley's 
religious um, persuasion. I don't know if her parents are of the same religious background. I think they're both Hindu. Um, I think her mother certainly is. I don't know about her father, so I don't want to, uh, to speculate too much, but Punjabi. But what I do want to say is that um, those differences are, are enormous and they are considerable. And I think that the RNC race for chair really brought that out into the forefront. And the idea that some of these minority Republicans, even though the House Republican Conference has gotten more diverse, are going to really have a tough but important road ahead of them if they're going to pursue their republicanism as a part of their ideological philosophy of governance, then I applaud them because I'm going to agree with them. Okay. But if it's simply performative to kind of advance their own interests, as opposed to advocating on behalf of the broadest swath of the community, I think that's not only dangerous. I think it's, I think it's nefarious. I think it's, it's bad. It's poorly inspired and it comes from the darker angels of our nature. With that, guys, thank you so much. I've loved talking to you guys about all of these things I get to think about. Have a great week. We'll talk to you again, 5.30 p.m. next Wednesday. Until then, keep the mic dropped.